When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One. Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. History friends, welcome to another collaboration. This one right here is on the Mexican-American War, and I'm very happy to be joined by my good friend, Tom Daly, from American Biography. It's a great podcast, Tom's a great guy, and he's a fellow Agoraite. You might be noticing a pattern here. I've had a good few people from the Agora Podcast Network on, which I think it's important to say how, well, important Agora is for, well, when diplomacy fails. You might remember from previous advertisements slash announcements that this podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, but it's true. Agora is a great way for all of us to kind of get together and present ourselves as a kind of unified group, and, well, I suppose my aim is to make history thrive, but altogether our aim is to really make podcasting, not necessarily just history podcasting, but all sorts of avenues of podcasting and different categories and everything therein, like a kind of way to help people learn. And it's been going really well. So I'm happy to have Tom Daly on because he's sort of the general secretary come guy who's responsible for everything, come guy that we email when something goes wrong. It's great to have him on. So yeah, I hope you guys enjoy it. We get into all sorts of things. Everything from, well, obviously Mexico, America and war to Zootropolis, which is in fact Zootopia when you're watching it in America. 
we get into everything. It's great. It's a great conversation, and I hope you guys enjoy it. I know you guys will enjoy it, because Zach Tromley and Tom Daly coming together, the results can only be good. Alrighty, enjoy it. Let me know what you thought through the usual channels. Thanks, guys. Basically introduce you, Tom Daly, from American Biography, and say, ask you how you are. How are you? I am doing really well. Thank you so much for having me on, Zach. Uh, it's, uh, it's a real pleasure. Oh, it's a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine, trust me. Anytime I can get one of my Agora friends, especially my best Agora friend on the podcast. Aww. I know, I know. Stop you. It's just, uh, it's always going to be a good time. So, yeah, I think you should, by the time this comes out, you should have got your bumper sticker by then. So hopefully you'll be advertising When Diplomacy Fails to all of... Boston? Massachusetts. Massachusetts, there we go. Yeah, I commute across half the state every day, so lots that's, of eyeballs. Yeah, that's 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 not why I chose you. <laughs> I wanted to give you it as a, as a present. I'm also going to give you some other stuff, but it was like a, it, it makes me sound like I'm this scheming promoter now that's just trying to get my name out there, which I am, but I at least have a bit of a heart as well. But in any case, merchandise aside... There was no merchandise for the Mexicans during the Mexican-American War. And the reason for that is they lost, and they lost big time. And that's what we're here to talk about today, amongst other things. So, sure. Uh, are you all ready to go? I'm happy to set the table and uh, give folks a, a little bit of an overview. Uh, my obvious caveat is that this is just going to be a quick rundown and and for more information i would refer listeners back to your full episode on the mexican-american war or suggest that they follow my podcast american biography because i will be talking a lot about this part of american history um, when i do the life of henry clay uh, in the future so uh, the mexican-american war was really america's first war of choice and yes, right away, some would say all wars are wars of choice, but this one scores particularly high on the because we could ometer. The flashpoint for the conflict would be Texas, but the whole thing was just chock full of other societal pathologies. And the consequences of this relatively little war would echo over a decade later and float over the battlefields of the American Civil War. But that's sort of jumping ahead. In 1845, um, just before the inauguration of President James K. Polk, the United States annexed the Republic of Texas, much to the chagrin of our neighbors to the south, Mexico. Now, they weren't too pleased about this. Uh, they were a little sore uh, about Texas having won its independence from them just about a decade earlier. And it had soured the relationship between the two nations a bit. So when Polk did come to office and made a $20 million offer to buy California, he was turned down. And you, you've got to understand something about Polk. Now, he was uh, a shameless expansionist in a shamelessly expansionist era. And making the United States a, a continental nation, one that stretched from coast to coast, was an express goal for his pledged single-term presidency. 
I find it ironic that Polk tried initially to make deals with Mexico, and while he drew a much harder line at first with the British um, when he was negotiating on establishing a permanent border for Canada, you know, getting behind that, that slogan of 54-40 or fight, and just as a side note, spoiler alert, uh, the 49th parallel is the border with Canada, not the 54th. So he obviously didn't stick to his guns there. Ultimately, Polk chose to negotiate that with Britain, probably because they were one of the premier military powers in the world at the time, and conversely chose to ratchet up the pressure on the much weaker Mexico over a relatively minor border dispute with them. Now, both nations disagreed what the southernmost border of Texas was, and they both sent troops into the disputed territory. It's rather predictable what would happen next, and one thing led to another, and inevitably skirmishes led to fatalities, and those fatalities led Polk to request a declaration of war from Congress upon Mexico, and that was granted. Militarily, the war was a decisive victory for the United States, uh, and in the end, the U.S. essentially took over the portion of the map you'd recognize today as being from the Rockies to the Pacific Ocean, uh, obviously minus the Oregon Territory. And that was taken from Mexico uh, for a settlement lower than Polk's original offer just on California. But uh, besides being just a, a fine display of American martial prowess, the war opened the West fully to settlement, but it, it also released a Pandora's box of sectional tensions, uh, mostly surrounding slavery and its expansion, for which there would be a reckoning, and I'm sure we'll get more into the nitty-gritty of that as, as we talk over the rest of the episode, but I think that's a good bare-bones assessment of the Mexican-American War. So, I guess with that, Mr. Twomley, I will hand it back over to you. Well, thank you very much for that uh, monologue there, because that, like, it's almost like being back in, in college all over again, that whole taking us right up to the Civil War thing. Because as someone who's been asked to, and just never ever will, because it's like opening a can of worms inside a nuclear bomb to try and cover something like the Civil War in my podcast, I always found because i find the lead up to wars interesting i always found the the idea how on earth does america fight itself like how do affairs get so bad that it, it seems like war is the only way and to a large extent they were issues that had been it wasn't just it didn't just break out they had been building and building for generations really I'm going to ask you a broad question now. Mm -hmm. How is the Mexican-American War viewed in America today? I think in the mainstream, it's probably viewed a little bit jingoistically and with mm. some uh, triumphalism. But it depends who you're talking about. It's not one unified vision. I think in the last 25, 30 years, uh, there's been a, a lot of uh, reconsideration of it. I mean, I think Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States has done a lot in that regard. Uh, right. There's also a revisionist history. I forget the author's name, but it's uh, Lies My High School Teacher Taught Me, huh. um, which uh, talks about you know the general 
thrust of most high school experiences sure. the idea that like columbus is this great hero well no he was also a kind of a genocidal maniac yeah uh i mean that's that's the extreme view obviously there's room for <laughs> there's room for his gray in between but yeah um we'll say maybe what are your views on it well one i would say the mexican-american war itself it's a combination of the hunger for westward expansion that mm-hmm. you know was encompassed by manifest destiny mm. and it's also ridden with racial superiority complexes sure and i think those things combine and of course it's also in its own way inextricably linked with the question of slavery and is and you can draw a straight line from it to the civil war Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the thing that always stuck stuck out to me, even in college, when the limited American history course that we did, it really stuck out to me how important this war was, because you normally just get Civil War and then that's it, but you never really seem to get the prelude to it, and the kind of real foundation for loads of the problems, America just simply wasn't able to absorb all this land that it snatched, for, for lack of a better term, off of off of Mexico, really. Yeah, I mean, and that that's there's a lot of deep background on that. Mm, yeah, and and even the fact I don't want people to think by snatch. I mean, you have to acknowledge the fact that Mexico had been laying claim to Texas without any real justification for at the very least a decade since the ten. At least a decade, yeah. Yeah, since the Texan Revolution took place, and then you have to factor in the fact that, which I found hilarious, that California rebelled and declared itself independent. Only to be told, like a week later, oh, America's actually at war with Mexico now, and then California was kind of like, "Oh, that's very convenient. That really fits into our plans very well." Yes. So, and I think the uh, the Bear Flag Republic lasts for all about a year mm-hmm. before it uh, is is incorporated into the annexed by the United States. Because mm-hmm. I I like me flags. I'm I'm very very bad at remembering them, but I think flags are really cool. And I always thought mainly because of because of Fallout. The the I don't know if if you're aware of this, but one there's a fallout game called fallout new vegas and and one of the one of the factions <laughs> in that game is the new california republic and it has a two-headed bear on its flag and i thought that was always very good because it, it, it kind of harks back to the california original california flag and the the idea of radiation all that kind of stuff this is how people go, go off on tangents but but yeah i always thought that when, when i realized where the flag came from it, it, it kind of it was a, a pin drop right there but yeah I've always found uh, this era of history, I think there's like a kind of a sweet spot of American history that I do find interesting. I don't know how you feel about it, but I'm going to just put forward my two cents first. It's kind of like, I don't, it's not that I don't like American history when it gets to a certain point, but I find American history almost immediately after the War of 1812, or indeed during it and before it as well, up to about the point just after the Mexican-American War basically the early, the first 50 years of the 1800s, I find that really interesting because it's mm-hmm. kind of like America's kind of developing and no one's really sure what it's going to develop into yeah. yet. And it's by no means certain that it will become this continental giant kind of thing. And you've got the diplomacy of all the other powers and Russia owns Alaska and Britain has designs on California. And it's all these kinds of different little strands coming together. And I really feel like because of that, it's fascinating to me. So I'm a really big fan of the Civil War and prior. Mm. Mm. I think I think after the Civil War, you get into a lot of technical 
issues like, oh, you know, this piece of legislation did X, that piece of legislation did Y, and then you get into the the Gilded Age, which is now we're learning about horizontal versus vertical integration and how corporations form trusts and, like, the terrible working conditions of the workers and, you know, how unions are formed and things like that. And all, all of it's valuable, but I'm very passionate about political theory the less hard science of it, the more philosophical arguments were really mostly happening around the time of the revolution and the early formation of the Republic through the civil war and the civil war closes a chapter sure. um, on, you know, ideas like federalism and states rights versus uh, national government power mm-hmm. and things like that. So this, this is a period that I find very fascinating. Oh, big time. Yeah. And I think especially for yourself with your career in law, essentially, really, I mean, <laughs> like you would be drawn to it naturally, wouldn't you? I say like all this kind of constitutional law, all that kind of thing that would come into it an awful lot. Yeah, a lot of big constitutional questions, and I don't want to oversell myself. I'm not an attorney or anything. I worked as a paralegal for a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, all, all these things are, are things that I find interesting and I think are important as a citizen to really continually uh, engage with. So you, obviously you don't live in Texas because you live in Massachusetts, but are you Correct. aware today of how, like, is there an element within Texas? I mean, I know it's kind of seen, I could be wrong about this, though. That it's kind of seen as like not a separate state, but it's like, oh, we were a republic once kind of thing. We were independent. And it because it's, and I could be wrong about this as well, but because it's the, the only American state to have been independent, well, apart from California for like a week or two, it, it has that kind of background there. Does that kind of factor into like interstate relations all that much or is that kind of forgotten about now? I mean, it's it's not forgotten about. I, I don't and I can't speak for Texans. I've never even been to Texas outside of kind of a low level nascent Texas secession movement uh, mm-hmm. that was going on during the Obama years. I don't think it really plays into a lot of day to day reality for sure. for Texans. I think the Western states in general and again, I'm not a Westerner, so I can't really speak for them, probably have a stronger sense of of state pride. Mm. And that's certainly something, the like, Texans are proud to be Texans. Yeah. And, you know, I'm from New Jersey. I live in Massachusetts. I don't really, I consider myself an American. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a nationalist in that regard. Uh, so it's not natural thinking to me it's not my natural thought process sure but i i don't think that they're like oh the average texan i don't think is saying oh we were a republic (laughs) for 10 years with terrible finances in the 1830s to the 1840s so we can go do that again yeah yeah i yeah I, i i see what you're saying all right yeah but Santa Ana essentially was like to the American government, oh, if you let me go back to Mexico, if you help me get there, I'll make sure that Mexico takes up that offer you made to them to to, to buy all that California, land from them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then he was saying to Mexico, I think it was General Batista or something, he was saying to him, oh, if you let me in, I'll, I'll shore up your dictatorship kind of thing. And he basically did neither and basically led the Mexican state into, well, he didn't lead it to the war because the war seemed mm-hmm. to be breaking down at that stage but i just don't want listeners to think that i blame america solely for the war i think it's about 70 30 
Yeah, I mean, I guess it always takes two to tango. Sure, but, uh, yeah. You know, there were there were points in the conflict where the Americans couldn't find a Mexican government to make peace with or yeah. to surrender. Yeah. So, that's I mean, it, it was not necessarily, you know, it was not a close-run thing. And that's no. not to pick on Mexico or, or Mexicans. The United States was materially and numerically a stronger power. Mm-hmm. And I think that has a lot to be said for the actual state of Mexico itself, because for a long time, the 13 colonies were almost in the shadow of this, like, United States of Mexico kind of thing. And I think once the Spanish left, it was almost like the Mexicans, they didn't really have the tools or they didn't really... I mean, in fairness, they were dealing with a lot of different issues, even from the fact that there were so many different nationalities within their official borders. Mm -hmm. Added to that, like all the Native American raids and everything else. I just, I find it striking the idea that the 13 colonies, like the, the ancestor of the American state was like under the shadow or under threat from this Mexican super state. Have you ever thought about that much yourself? Well, I mean, I think that that was a real fear in like the 1790s. And and there was a lot of contention even in the early 19th century about, say, the Mississippi River and navigation rights and things like that. Um, but in 1804, uh, you know, Jefferson purchased the Louisiana Territory, which I think really flipped that script uh, yeah. dramatically. Yeah. Um, you know, that's like a third of a continent that essentially changes hands at that yeah. point. It seemed to be a big uh, turning point, all right. And, and I mean, and I think... By that point, it was pretty clear that that Spain was uh, a waning power. Mm. So I, I don't think after 1804 there was really a, a great fear of you know the Spanish in North America, and and I don't think there was ever really a fear of Mexico per se mm. um, for the the eastern states. Yeah, sure. I would like to talk a little bit about Manifest Destiny as well because. Apart from being like a really, really good name for like a sword, I think, I think it's a really interesting <laughs> term itself, like a really interesting idea, uh, like equating it with other like similar kind of ideas in Europe. I, I always find it fun to do these things, like try and compare things to other things in history. And it sounds really awful, Tom, but the closest comparison I found is like Lebensraum. Like living space, living Nazi space. Germany's living space. Yeah, <laughs> um, how would you feel about that? Comparison? Oh man, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's possible to detach the simple idea of Liebenstrom from Nazi ideology, and I, I don't think not being able to disentangle the two, I don't think it's applicable because it comes with so much baggage. That term. Oh yeah, sure. Um, of course, there are people who use the word genocide to describe the destruction of the native cultures uh, you know in the west victim to westward expansion um i'm not sure that the technical definition fits uh i, I don't think it's nearly as uh, mechanical or planned mm -hmm. as you know the the modern idea of genocide implies part of manifest destiny obviously there's you know this really warm feeling that comes with the idea that you know, providence is shining upon our people, uh, <laughs> yeah. and you know it, we're meant to be a continental nation and sure. go from from coast to coast. When you look west from, say, St. Louis, which is in Missouri, and mm -hmm. it's the gateway to the west. That's why we have the giant arch there. A fairly sparsely populated continent, and a lot of what's 
in the ether there is the idea that if we stretch from coast to coast, think of the possibilities that yeah. our industriousness could bring uh, to the West. Uh, think of what could be possible. What can't we accomplish by by getting this the these resources into production? Because we are at the beginning of a, a new type of technical thinking. Um, you know, the industrial revolution is kind of a stone's throw away. Mm. You know, we are thinking more modernly, less agriculturally maybe than, than we used to. Yeah, yeah, big time. I, I always find it interesting as well, and we don't we, – we were we were originally going to do the Spanish-American War on top of this one, but I think myself, I kind of just got too overwhelmed with it all. But the idea of the railway basically changing everything in America and basically helping it become the transcontinental uh, power that that manifest destiny it implied it would have to be if manifest destiny was to be realized. I find that the whole importance of the railway obviously is well documented elsewhere, and I'm not going to try and summarize it into a few words, but the the theme of inventing something like that and and using it so effectively that you almost change the course of American history because how else could you traverse? Because like a few of my friends just say because to people from Ireland where Ireland is such a small country and like even if you're going to the other end of it you're saying to yourself okay this is like a three or four hour journey okay I'm ready for this kind of thing you stock up the car you get all the supplies ready you you plan your halfway stop and all that kind of thing because it's just so far away and then you you get to Mayo or you get to Galway or whatever on the west going from the east and you're like right I'm here now and like that's a long journey for Irish people for most people it would be long but I think just the idea of having a continent as a country and it's just such a a vast swathe of territory and I think this is why my friends, when I used to ask them why they found American history so interesting, they always used to tell me one big part of it was the fact that it was just such a, it was a melting pot of so many different things, so many different peoples and, and issues and everything else and they all come together and they all make this this kind of American national idea and to to me i i used to ask them well like well what what part of it really interests you and they're like oh the, the way that it just expanded all the way to the west and it was just so like amazing and and the railway and all that so something i picked out here it's it's a wall a walt whitman poem that kind of encompasses the energy and i just have a selection of it i'm not going to read the whole thing's kind of long sure. it's called pioneers oh pioneers Come, my tan-faced children, follow well in order, get your weapons ready. Have you your pistols? Have you your sharp-edged axes? Pioneers, O oh pioneers? For we cannot tarry here. We must march, my darlings. We must bear the brunt of danger. We, the youthful, sinewy races, all the rest on us depend. Pioneers. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So pioneers, all the past we leave behind. We debauch upon a newer, mightier world, varied world. Fresh and strong, the world we seize, world of labor and the march. Pioneers, oh pioneers, we detachments, steady throwing, down the edges, through the passes, up the mountain steep, conquering, holding, daring, venturing as we go the unknown ways. Pioneers, oh pioneers, we the primeval forests felling, we the rivers stemming, vexing, we and piercing deep the minds within. We, the surface broad surveying, we, the virgin soil upheaving, pioneers, oh pioneers. Wow. <laughs> That's, uh, I can, do you know what I can picture you narrating that over an ad for like going to America or something? <laughs> very, very like... Evocative. Yes. Very evocative, it really, really is. Uh, when do you know when about that was that would have been written? Well, Walt Whitman wrote that in 1865, but he was an old man at that point, mm. so he would have lived through this period. Yeah, and he would have seen like the whole struggling to get further west and all that kind mm-hmm. of thing and everything right. else. I guess I like to talk about a few aspects just of the war itself. And one of the things that I I didn't cover in the first go five years ago, and I didn't cover the next go round either, was the different, and I suppose this ties into the good guy, bad guy narrative. One of them is the San Patricios or the St. Patrick's Battalion, which was a a group of of like several hundred, maybe even a thousand uh, immigrant soldiers. They're mostly made up of Irish and they they deserted the or they either deserted or they crossed over the border because of as irish catholics they saw any kind of abuses towards catholics mexican catholics as just the worst thing ever because mm-hmm. ireland, ireland loves its catholicism and especially did back then so they joined the mexican army and a good few of them were ended up being captured and, and hanged as, as deserters but do you know of any other like foreign contingents or anything like that i don't know how much you would generally know about the actual conflict itself, but... Uh, I don't know much about specifics like that. I mean, I know at the time the United States war effort would be dramatically different than we'd see today. Uh, A lot of it was, you know, relegated to the president requesting the governors call up the militia and essentially federalize the state militias. There wasn't a U.S. army per se, but Mm -hmm. rather, you know, you have... You know, the 2nd Virginia Company, you know, the 3rd Ohio, 
things like that. And, and people familiar with Civil War movies will recognize that that type of language. But where it comes to foreign contingents like that, not really sure, unfortunately. Okay, well, that's all right. It was a bit of a wild coin toss. And as far as I'm aware, as far as my research has let me know, there was the San Patricios was the biggest one. That was like the biggest example at it. And people assumed that because I'm Irish, I would be all over that. But I, I, because I don't really like focusing on armies, I especially don't like focusing on little niche facts about armies. So I studiously avoided that one, even though that, that surprised many people. So uh, I'm the same way, though. I like uh, not really into the X's and O's of battles. No, me neither. And I never was. And I think that's never going to change. And especially with equipment as well. At the start, people were kind of like, oh, but Zach, what's, what, what weapons did the soldiers use? And like, what color were their uniforms? And like, well, how long did it take them to get from here to there? And I'm like, look, guys, that, that's not the podcast for this. And <laughs> after a while, people just stopped asking. They're kind of like, okay, fine. You just do what you want to do. And I'll just listen. I guess I'll make it up myself. And I was like, yep, you keep you keep doing that. <laughs> no, I'm doing my thing. I did a talk episode with you on mm-hmm. the XYZ affair, and yeah. we got into, I suppose it would have been about 50 years before this era. Is there any real kind of figures that stand out to you that you would like to cover in the future? Um, well, Henry Clay, I think, is one that, that pops up uh, on Fortunately, oh, not unfortunately, but I'm still doing the life of Marshall. Um, mm. It's been, I think, a year since we did that episode, and I've only gone about 15 years <laughs> in, in the chronology. The story's worth telling. It's worth telling right. That's right. Uh, and you know, John Marshall's on the Supreme Court now. He just decided Marbury versus Madison, and you know, we're just talking about judicial impeachment in the episode I'm working on now, which are all, all fascinatingly relevant to uh, you know the United States today. A lot of people talking about impeachment. Lots of people talking about the independent judiciary. So that that's kind of thrilling to be putting that stuff out when people are actually talking about those things. Sure, yeah. Uh, but uh, Henry Clay is a person uh, who I intend to do after I'm done with the life of Marshall. Mm-hmm. And Henry Clay is a guy who really has his last act in the Compromise of 1850. Right. Um, so right after uh, the Mexican-American War as the United States is trying to figure out what it's going to do. There's really three people in the United States, and they're referred to sometimes as the Great Triumvirate. And that's Clay, Henry Clay, who is kind of the spokesman for the West, uh, Daniel Webster, who is sort of the spokesman for the North, John C. Calhoun, who has come to be the voice of the South. And these are three guys who have, have dominated the United States for the past 40 years, pretty much as the first post-revolutionary generation, mm-hmm. like after like Marshall have retired. This is all the last act for these guys. This is the yeah. twilight of the giants. Mm. And after these three guys who have been you know, speaker of the house, you know, secretary of war, secretary of state, vice presidents, everything but president, these three yeah. guys have been, uh, they're all dead within two years of wow. the compromise of 1850. And you really enter kind of, this vacuum of leadership mm. foremost in the 1850s in, in where the country tears itself apart. Yeah. And how, like in terms of a vacuum of leadership, how much 
impact do you think that had? Like, do you think people who were maybe not necessarily fully equipped to be in positions of leadership were kind of thrust there because there was like no one else? Do, do you did you see that happening all that much after? Oh. Yeah, I mean, so in 1848, following the war, uh, Zach Taylor, the general, was elected president. Yeah. He dies in office. Mm. And I think Millard Fillmore becomes president. Following him is Franklin Pierce. Following him is James Buchanan. Have you heard of any of these presidents? Nope. (laughs) I think that's really all you have to say. Yeah. Um, James Buchanan is the last pre-Civil War president, and I think – on every presidential ranking that comes out as they come out every few years. He's yeah. dead last. Oh, dead really? last every wow. single time. Because he sat there and he did nothing. Yeah. Now, like Miller Fillmore was an accidental president. Franklin Pierce, his son died in a train accident on the way to his inauguration, and he kind of slipped into alcoholism after that. So, I mean, there's no great presidents, no great national leaders. Mm. Stephen Douglas is sort of the the senator from Illinois who's a great foil for Abraham Lincoln, the Lincoln-Douglas debate, Stephen Douglas. He's the closest thing to a national leader, but he's he's one senator. Well, I don't know. Are we going to talk about the Compromise of 1850? Sure, yeah. No, because I think that's... As far as events go around this time, it doesn't have to all be like before the war or just as the war ended. Go for it, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the Compromise of 1850 is is even comes after the the greatest treaty that we've ever signed by name, Guadalupe Hidalgo, which is just so much fun to say. Yes. Yeah. So, and part of this is so interwoven with slavery because there's this guy called. Wilmot, a congressman from Pennsylvania, and he keeps attaching a rider to funding for the war and then even funding for the terms of the treaty, which is $15 million to Mexico, saying that any, any territory taken from Mexico as a result of the war can't include slavery because Mexico had actually banned slavery. Yeah, of course, so, yeah. <laughs> and the Southerners don't have the power to shoot it down in the House, so it keeps passing the House and the Senate keeps rejecting it. So we're kind of reaching a crisis here uh, where we need to actually kind of approve this sure. and get this stuff done. So the Compromise of 1850 is the result of this. Now, we have to think what the territory that we're talking about, that we're trying to square away here, is about a about doubles the size of the United States. It's 1.2 million square miles. You know, this is you know the state of Washington, state of Oregon, that wasn't already part of the Oregon Territory, not to be confused with that. Idaho, California will be encompassed in this, even though they were the republic, so it's a little wiggle room, but this will be play into factor. Uh, Nevada, Utah, most of Arizona, parts of New Mexico, parts of Colorado, parts of Montana, and parts of Wyoming. It's mind-bent, like it's mind-blowing, it's just so... Such a massive influx of territory, like it's massive, crazy. and at a steal of a deal of fifteen million dollars, because as a republic we take nothing by conquest. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in eighteen fifty, what we're looking at is a compromise that satisfies essentially nobody. The North would essentially get a 
unified as in one state, one free state of California, and New Mexico would also be free. Uh, you'd get the slave trade ended in the District of Columbia, but the North would have to accept a tougher fugitive slave law to help return runaways sure. uh, that were leaving the South. Now, the South would have to obtain – I'm sorry. The South would obtain a better fugitive slave law. It would get the continuation of slavery in the District of Columbia, just not the trade, and there would be no mention of the Wilmot Proviso. But it would also be giving up California and New Mexico as slave states, and, of course, the Missouri Compromise would be effectively killed by this. It would no longer apply because you can't have California in as one state and put the Mason-Dixon line across the whole continent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. Now, yeah, so this puts the parties, the two national parties in a bind. So right now you have the Whigs and the Democrats. Mm -hmm. Those are the two parties. So northern Whigs are really angry about the slavery – about slavery being extended to any of the former Mexican territory, and they, they're against that. Uh, and what you see is an increase in the north at this time. You see an increase in the politics of – I can't say this – abolitionism. <laughs> right. There's <laughs> <laughs> something I had a mental block there. <laughs> so the the northern Whigs are angry, and you see increased abolitionist activity in the north. And that puts northern Democrats in a bind, too, because they need to be re responsive to their constituents. Mm -hmm. and at the same time, the south is getting more and more culturally dependent and to an extent politically dependent on slavery. Yeah. The, ba the balance here is incredibly important. Part of the beauty of the Missouri Compromise that had really kept the peace since 1820 had been each time a free state is entered into the Union, a slave state would be entered into the Union. And that kept representation in the Senate balanced. Sure. Because the population sure weren't. The North was much more populated and could much more easily – control the House of Representatives just on population. So the South was even made even more dependent on slavery because of the three-fifths compromise, where the number of slaves they had could affect their actual congressional representation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they're really loath to give that up. So really, all that's accomplished here in the Compromise of 1850 is a can kicked down the road. Oh, yeah. And as a result of this, th these tensions keep building, and it actually tears the parties apart. This, the Democrats become a, a solid South, mm. and the Whigs just explode into a bunch of different parties. There's the, the Northern Conscience Whigs, and they call themselves Conscience Whigs because they're moral repugnance against slavery. Mm. You have free soilers. I mean, you have know-nothings as well, so it's not all high-minded. And they were very anti-immigrant know-nothings. But eventually, a lot of that would coalesce into the Republican Party. And by 1860, you'd have a solid Democratic South and a solid Republican North. And what would happen is... A man like Abraham Lincoln comes along, and he wins the presidency without winning a single southern state. And at that point, the writing's on the wall for the South. Yeah. And they wow. feel they're facing a perpetual minority government. So. 
really, I think the the whole kicking the can down the road idea, was there any attempt to, like, did no one see what was happening? Did no one think, well, this might come to blows in the future? Interesting you should ask. I actually have a great quote from 1820. Oh. Uh, So Thomas Jefferson Mm. is watching from Monticello uh, the passing of the Missouri Compromise. And how the Americans are going to try to deal with expansion and slavery. Sure. And he says, But this momentous question, like a fire bell in the night, awakened and filled me with terror. I considered it at once as the knell of the Union. It is hushed indeed for the moment, but this is a reprieve only, not a final sentence. Wow. So in 1820, Jefferson's like, this is a Band-Aid. Yeah. And it's going to get bad. And and clearly it did. <laughs> and clearly it did. Yeah. I, I'm, and politically speaking as well, you said they broke up into so many different, so many different parties. Un, unaware of how, to a large extent, these parties see themselves, is there much of a Democrat-Republican emphasis today on where they came from? It almost couldn't be. Um, I mean, the, the modern Republican party is done essentially a 180. Yeah. Um, and so have the Democrats. Uh, I mean, the Democrats were the party of slavery in 1860. Yeah. And they're the party of civil rights since 1960. They're both almost completely detached from their historical moorings. Yeah. I mean, they've taken on their own, their own self-interest as they've evolved um, it's really how the two-party system maintains in the United States is smaller movements pop up and they're absorbed yeah. by the parties. Which we, so, find, I mean, we find that bizarre, by the way. Like everyone I'm outside sure. of America finds the two-party system. Like I remember learning about it in college and I mean I suppose to an extent you have that in Ireland as well because you have Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, and they are essentially the same party no matter what they try to tell you. But there is a few little smaller ones going on, so you'd have coalitions, but it's multi-party. But there's never been a case where both Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil are out of government. So in mm-hmm. a sense, it is two-party. Sorry to interrupt you there, but just the, mm-hmm. the, the, the fact that like it, it's been this way for so long. And during elections, I mean, and, and everything else, because there was a recent one, which we, which we won't talk too much about... Anytime there was any debates or anything like that between the the lesser candidates in in the smaller parties that just don't get the airtime, do you think that's ever going to change? Do you think that the two-party system is sustainable? I I don't know. I I see nothing to the contrary in the United States. I mean, so just to think as a historical example, so in the 1890s, you know, you have in America, you have the Western populist movement. Um, that's you know wants to get off the gold standard and free silver for the Western farmers and democratically elected senators uh, in place, and they get a million votes in I think 1892. <laughs> um, by 1896, William Jennings Bryant, their champion, is the Democratic Party's presidential nominee. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so. You know, there's that. You can look at Bernie Sanders recently and mm. the the Sanders insurgency. Um, you know, he's he's not a Democrat, mm. but he was vying for leadership of the Democratic Party, and yeah. there was just uh, the Democratic Party just elected a chairman, and you know, there's a big question of whether the progressives are going to stay in the Democratic Party, and 
I don't know. Like, if they were to leave, I don't know what they would be doing except kind of assigning themselves into a permanent Republican majority. Yeah. But – and conversely, the Republican Party very recently had one of these insurgencies take it over, the Tea Party. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not passing judgment on the Tea Party. You can say good or bad, but they are the Democrat – I'm sorry. They are the Republican Party now. Mm-hmm. Like your traditional Republicans are not in charge of that party anymore. No. And evolution like that is, is just a part of the American process. And it's really only been once or twice in our history that you've seen the Federalist Party died, but it essentially committed suicide <laughs> during the War of 1812. Yeah. And you've seen, and you've seen the Whigs just kind of disappear as well, but to form the bulk of the new Republican Party in the 1850s. Mm-hmm. So it seems like we always gravitate towards the two-party system. I'm not saying that's good, but it, it certainly seems to be a staple yeah, it se- it does seem to be. Yeah. I, I- okay. Well, Tom. I mean, we've we talked through a good few points, and maybe we've forgotten some stuff. Maybe not. I'm sure people will let us know. But I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on and and fleshing out some some more of the details on the Mexican American War. Hey, man. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's it's really an honor to be on the When Diplomacy Fails uh, official feed. So mm-hmm. you know, kind of a dream come true. Thank you for oh. having. Me. Well, well, I, I, I'm, I'm always here to make your dreams come true, whether that's sending you bumper stickers or letting <laughs> you be on, on the feed. It's, it's something I'm very happy to do. And I'm, I'm, I've always been a fan of your podcast. I'm a big fan of your work. And I think us, us Agoraites banding together is, is only a good thing. And I've done it with a few other people as well from, from Agora. So I thought it was only right to have you on and get your perspective on, on parts of American history that really they just need to be talked about. So yeah, thanks very much. Oh, thank you, and happy birthday oh, for thanks. when diplomacy fails. Five years, everybody. Yeah, come on, come on. If you could any any suggestions for cake would be great. I'm trying to like decide which cake exactly we should have because I'll actually be coming home from my honeymoon on like the 15th of May, and then all of this starts up then from the 18th. So. Any ideas for, like, I I don't know why I mentioned that. I think just because I'll probably be so full from everything I eat on my honeymoon, I just, maybe I won't want cake. <laughs> but then again, it is me, so I probably will, so I'm not sure. Oh, I was going to ask you, actually, and this is like a, I might even leave this in. Have you seen the movie Zootropolis? Zootopia? Oh, Zootopia in America, yeah, yeah. Are you kidding me? It's Zootropolis there? Yeah, they changed the name. I don't know why it's Zootopia in America. Actually, my sister Sarah told me that. She said, yeah, it's Zootopia in America. Why, just... why do they treat us like children? I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I, that's worse than the Sorcerer's Stone. I know. <laughs> I'd love to see. I love finding out why it's the case that they changed the name. Yeah, I was just wondering if you actually saw it, because I know you have a, a small human in your midst, so it's it's likely that you would have. But well, I just I am a, yeah I am I, legally charged with a small human. <laughs> yeah, we did we did see Zootropolis. I thought it was quite good. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I did not the the subtle undertones there were not so subtle, and mm. um, you know, I thought it was a good message, and uh, was was happy to bring my daughter to see it. Yeah, I I just thought it was it. I don't know why I thought of you, but it would when I watched that, it made me happy with the idea that in the future I could bring my kids to see Disney movies that just might have a, a good message to them. gave me gave me hope for the future, and I think in this day and age, if we could get some public representatives in particular to see it, 
perhaps they would receive the message and maybe even take it on board. I mean that that and actually, if I could be honest, um, Moana I thought was even better because mm. I have a daughter specifically, and uh, the idea that you know the the Disney princess is actually the hero yeah, of the yeah. movie is something they've been building to for a while, and uh, you know, plus uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson is in it, and he <laughs> sings, and he's just super talented and. <laughs> He's one, he's one he's on my list to, of people I want really really want to meet. One of them is is The Rock. I know him as The Rock cuz I'm a wrestling fan. Sure, sure. I, I, I was in high school once too. <laughs> okay, okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I I've always I've always wanted to meet him. Who else do I want to meet? Justin Trudeau just cuz he seems like a nice guy. Um Barack Obama also cuz he seems like a nice guy. They're really um, all obtainable, huh? Yeah, yeah, pretty much all achievable. Um, there's some dead people as well, probably less realistic, like the likes of Bismarck, who probably wouldn't yeah. like me anyway, because he'd probably think I'm too enthusiastic, and then he'd like complain about his digestion and try to get away from me. But I can dream, I can dream. That's what this is all for. This is oh, yeah. true. Yeah. Well, anyway, thanks very much for coming on, and I'm sure we'll be talking to you again in the future sometime soon. I'd be happy to. Mm. Cheers, man. Thanks. No problem. Thank you. Have a good one, Zach. And we're out the other end. He does, in fact, legally find himself responsible for a small human. But he is also your American biography podcaster and host, Tom Daly. Thanks again. A huge thanks, in fact, to Tom Daly for joining us and wishing us happy birthday and still waiting on suggestions for cake. But, like, come on, can't can't do everything, can he? Whatever it is, either way, it was a good episode. I really enjoyed doing it. And I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it. Remember to find both of us. You can let us know what you thought. Talk to us on Twitter or what have you. That's something I never thought I'd hear myself say, but it has to be said. You can find Tom Daly on Twitter, and this is all lowercase, American underscore bio. So check him out. Tell him that you enjoyed the episode. Let me know if you enjoyed the episode. And yeah, that's going to do it. Enjoy everything else that's out in this remastered project, guys. You're awesome, you're great, and you all earned it. Remember to spread the word. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all very soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.